We turn tonight in God's Word to the book of Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. One of the reasons that Sydney's song choice fits so well is the fact that we're going back to those ancient words, those Old Testament words where God's truth still speaks to us so clearly and beautifully, even in our present day and our present lives. Exodus chapter 25, we'll begin reading at verse 10, reading through verse 22. Last Lord's Day, we considered this passage as well, and and there we, we spent time thinking and reflecting mainly upon, one, the size of the Ark of the Covenant, how it was laid out, the arrangement of it, the the various pieces that are a part of it, the various components, the box part, uh, the poles and the rings that were distinct as far as the Ark of the Covenant, that mercy lid, that atonement cover made of pure gold, and those cherubim made of one piece with the cover that stood above it. We considered those, those matters of the material as well and its placement within the Holy of Holies, there to be viewed only but once a year and there by the high priest and there only with the incense and the blood being brought in. We also considered the purpose for which, why, why is God ordering this? And it was in this means that God's presence was to be with his people. God desired to be with his people. He wanted to be present with them. And the means that God chose by which he was going to be present was through this Ark of the Covenant. But it necessitated that mercy seat. It necessitated the blood. So tonight we look more at the fulfillment. What did, how does this Ark of the Covenant point us to Christ? And then what are its implications for what we're doing tonight? What does the Ark of the Covenant have to do with Little Farms Chapel's worship this evening? Verse 10. Exodus 25. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them. The two ends of the mercy seat make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end, of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Thus far, the reading 
of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, we ask that your spirit will work in our hearts to understand and apply what is read and preached from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So tonight, as you turn to your sermon outline, for those of you visiting, you may wonder, doesn't he know how to count? Well, I do struggle with that as well as spelling, but I do know what I'm doing in the fact that it's point three. We had points two last Sunday night uh, dealing with the items that I mentioned. So tonight, we have two more points to deal with as far as this is concerned. One, the fulfillment. How do we see it fulfilled in the New Testament? And then secondly, what are the implications? First of all, in terms of fulfillment, how do we see this ark? Well, we have to stop and think. What, was, what is the main point, what is the main purpose of the whole tabernacle, of all these pieces of furniture that we have looked at, and now specifically of the Ark of the Covenant? It is to do, as God said at the beginning of Exodus chapter 25, I want to meet with you, my people. I want to be with you. That I, as Almighty God, have a desire to be with you. So make me a tabernacle. Build me a tabernacle. Follow exactly that which I command you to do. And in following that command, in having these various pieces of furniture arranged in the exact way in which I tell you to arrange them, making them exactly, following the blueprint to the detail, I shall come and I shall meet with you. I will tabernacle. I will dwell. Because that's the idea of the word tabernacle. The word tabernacle means to dwell with, to be with, to, to take up residence with. Now, where do we see that fulfilled? How do, what is God picturing here? What is God showing us? As we know, the, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that these things were shadows. They were shadows to point us to a particular person and to his work. They were there to point us to Christ. As we have seen with all of these pieces of furniture, they are all related to Christ in one way or another. Some more perhaps, some less, but all to point us to the work of Jesus Christ, to the person of Jesus Christ. Even now to the coming of Jesus Christ. So let's look at two pretty familiar passages, I would think, with most of us. And so I, I'm not going to dwell on them. But let's turn to John, chapter 1. John 1. The message of John as far as the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, the Word becoming flesh. And then we come to that verse, which is no accident. Which is not just saying, how can I say this different than Matthew said it? How can I say it different than Luke put it? I, I, I know, I'll, I'll put this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the one only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's the way I'll describe it. Now, as we have looked at, John, more than the other writers, is pointing us to this tabernacle and saying, in Christ, we see the fulfillment of all of these things. The light, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of the world. All of these statements that come forth from Jesus in the Gospel of John. 
all point us back to this Old Testament tabernacle, to all of these pieces of furniture. But here at the beginning of his gospel, John gives us the whole picture. Why did Jesus come? He came so that he might dwell amongst us. Some of your versions even use the word tabernacle. He came so that he might tabernacle with us. God took on flesh in order that he might tabernacle, that he might dwell with us. In the Old Testament, God said, build me a tabernacle, build me a tent, build me these pieces of furniture that I might come and dwell with you. Here, in this New Testament, God is saying, I, myself, will come to you, not in a tabernacle, not in furniture. I will come to you in a different tent. As Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that this body is but our tent. God comes in a tent, in human flesh, in order that he might tabernacle with us. So whenever we read in the Old Testament, in Exodus here, in all these chapters, all of these details, we're reading all of these details because God is trying to show us the exactness with which His Son will come. So where do we see the fulfillment? Point A. Christ came and tabernacled with us. Secondly, turn to another familiar passage, which is the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we'll consider verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our prophets by the fathers, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, okay, that is the Son, that is Christ, that is the one who came and tabernacled. The one who came and dwelt. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, think about that, that Ark of the Covenant. You have those cherubim, right? Those, those two angels, you have the mercy seat. Where does God dwell? God dwells between the cherubim. How? In unapproachable light. In that glory. Sometimes we use the expression, the Shekinah glory of God. The glory of God that was so glorious that even though Moses only sees, as it were, the back of God, his face yet shines so brightly that the people of Israel have to say, no, 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 put a veil on it. This is too much. The glory of God. Okay? Did you notice that was in the John passage too? We have seen his glory. He's come. We've seen it. We've witnessed it. We know that Christ is the glory of God. Hebrews says he is the exact imprint of his nature. See, when we, see, when we read of Christ in the New Testament, when we read of Jesus in the New Testament, we're not reading of something that is less than God. We are reading of the exact likeness of God. Next time those two people in white shirts knock on your door. They want to leave you a track. want to leave you a magazine. 
Just pull out your Bible and say, Jesus Christ is the exact likeness of God. So says God. End of discussion. Next time your Mormon friend at work wants to engage you in a discussion about that Christ is not really God, bring out Hebrews 1, 3. He is the exact imprint. God came and dwelt with us. Emmanuel, God with us. This isn't second class, folks. This is first class. This is top rate. God came and dwelt with us. That's his picture in the tabernacle. People of Israel aren't thinking about this tabernacle and the glory of God dwelling there between the cherubim going, ah, you know, this is kind of second rate, you know. Couldn't God do better than this? They're going, wow, glory of God, right in our midst. Couldn't God do better than Jesus Christ? No. No. There is none better. There is none superior. He is the exact imprint of God. He has dwelt with us. Do you hear that word, exact imprint? You, are you reflecting back now to Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, where we have God saying, this is what I want you to build for me. Make it this way. Make it this tall. Make it with this molding. Make it with this amount of rings. Make it out of this material. And then we read again, and they built him this and this, and we read it all again. Why? The exact imprint. God is, is drilling it into our heads. My son who is going to come in human flesh, is going to be the exact imprint. Christ, Jesus, is the exact imprint of my nature. Do we see the fulfillment in Christ? Oh, do we see the fulfillment there? But not only in that, it's also that Christ came to atone. That Christ came by His blood. Remember that, that mercy seat? We took some time with that last Lord's Day evening. That mercy seat, that covering, that atonement cover. Okay, Mercy seat, just to repeat, is not mercy seat in terms of mercy chair. It's not seat in terms of this is the place where God is going to sit. It's mercy in that this is where mercy begins. It is the basis. It is the foundation of mercy. And what is the foundation of mercy? But the blood, the blood, the blood. Christ comes to atone. There we see the fulfillment of that ceremony of Leviticus chapter 16 on the day of atonement. Of the high priest entering in. And the book of Hebrews continues that thought over and over and over again that it is Christ by His blood. His blood covers our sins. His blood brings mercy. Seeing we're in Hebrews, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. But down to verse 17. Therefore, 
he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now notice what happened. The author of Hebrews just said that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Now he says, but he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that phrase is repeated often in the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of other references if you're taking notes. 1 John 4.10 and Romans 3.25. He came to be this propitiation. Why, Why am I emphasizing that? Because that word is from the Latin meaning favorable, gracious, or kind. The first attested use of this term is in a Latin translation of the scriptures. That translation translates a Greek word which is found 22 times in the Greek Old Testament, which refers to covering or mercy. Make for me, God is saying, a propitiation covering. Make for me a covering by which your sin can be atoned for, by which your sin can be covered. Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews says, is that propitiation. By his blood, he covers sin. The exact picture of that which happened on that day of atonement in that holy, most holy place. By his blood, he makes that propitiation. For what? For our sins. There's that picture again. Okay? What's in the box? What's in that Ark of the Covenant? What's below the lid? Remember the three objects? What were they? One, what was in there? The rod, the staff that budded. Second, the law, the tablets of the law. Third, the pot of manna. What did all three of those things represent but the sin and rebellion of God's people? The law, their transgressions. They could not keep that law perfectly. They had to keep coming back over and over, year after year, and offering sacrifices. Why? Because their sin was never covered. There it was, the law. The mercy seat with the blood covers their sin. There's that golden pot of manna. How did that display? What brought it on? We don't trust you, God. Because of their lack of faith. Put a mercy seat. Cover it with the blood. And by the blood that is on the mercy seat, we will cover over their lack of faith. The third item is the staff, the the Aaron's staff that buds. That was outright rebellion. God, we don't want you. We don't want your rules. We're going to go our own way and do our own thing. God covers by the blood the rebellion. Of his people. That's what Christ's blood does. It covers over our transgressions. 
the things that, that we did that we should not have done and so many failures of things we should have done but refused to do. It covers over our lack of faith and trust in putting everything in God. It, it, we sing, you know, you're my all in all, but we live like you're my half and half. I'll draw upon my own support. I'll draw upon my own energy. I'm not going to trust you fully, Lord. The blood of Christ covers our sin. It covers our lack of trust. It covers our willful rebellion against Him. The blood of Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the atonement covering, the mercy covering, the grace covering of all of our sin. But this whole thing, once again, is about the presence of God with His people. It was showing he was with them. We see that fulfilled in Christ. I'll refer to it as Christ's abiding presence. That's why we sang the hymn we did. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. I need you. I need you to abide with me. I need your presence every waking hour. I need your presence in life. I need your presence in death. I need you, Christ. And what is Christ's answer? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What is Christ's answer? Lo, I am with you always till the end of the world. See, and here, here's where it becomes so real in our lives. As we face the, the difficulties, as we face the struggles of life. Christ came and tabernacled. Christ, the exact imprint of the nature of God. Christ, who atoned for all of my sin and your sin. Christ promises His abiding presence. That's the promise that Sidney and Chase can now hold on to. Here it is. I confess Christ. And Christ says, and I confess you. You stood and confessed me before men. Now I confess you before my Father in heaven. And nothing and no one can snatch you from my hand. I am forever present with you. Imagine, just think about that. In the in the Old Testament, the Israelites, you know, had this idea. You know, they, they got to be near the tabernacle, right? That's where God's presence is. Now, what if they go to the other side of the world? Where's God's presence? Well, it's in a tent. It's over there. Want to get back to God's presence? Isn't that David's heart all the time? You know, oh, how I long. Where? For to be in the presence of God, to be by that tabernacle. Here's the blessing that you and I experience as God's people. Here's the blessing that Chase and Sidney can now hold on to. They don't have to be in a tabernacle. They don't have to be in a special place. God's presence is promised to each one of us. Why? Because Christ's abiding presence is now in us. Wherever we go, Christ is with us. You know, some of you probably grew up in 
uh, somewhat the same era I did with that hounding voice of your parents as you went out Friday or Saturday night. Now, just remember, wherever you're going, Christ may come tonight. Where does he want to find you? You're thinking twice about where you ought to go. Here's the stark reality, folks. That really was a wrong theology. Because Christ was already was with me. And wherever I went, Christ already was there. What a comfort. Go to the doctor to read those results. Christ is present. Go to the bedside of that loved one. As they take their dying breaths, Christ is present. You sit in that classroom feeling kind of all alone as the professor perhaps rants and raves in an anti-Christian rant. Christ is present. You go all the way to Africa. Christ is present. Never leaves us, never forsakes us. The presence of Christ is always with us. See, that's the fulfillment of the tabernacle. The idea in that Old Testament was, hey, you're moving? Pick me up. Let's go. I'll go with you. We journeying? Fine. I'll move the cloud. Let's go. I'm going with you. Set up camp again. Here I come. I dwell between the cherubim. See, I don't leave you. We don't have to go. Trust the promise of God. Trust the presence of Christ. And where we face, what struggles, what joys, what blessings, what sorrows, Christ is present. To never leave, to never forsake. Two scripture verses, in case you want to underline them in your Bible, sir. Hebrews 13.5 and Matthew 28.20. Well, let's close then by talking about the implications. What does this have to do with that which we do here from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, morning and evening in worship? Well, one, it might appear rather obvious, but perhaps needs to be stated in this day and age in which we live. One, there are to be no depictions of God himself. The one who dwells as The author, as Paul writes to Timothy, in unapproachable light is understanding the glory of the tabernacle and that there was no carved image of God to be made. There were pieces of furniture, beautiful, ornate, even expensive, but none, none were to be a representation of God himself. No depictions of God. No pictures of God. God cannot be contained in an image. So we come here and to a certain extent things are rather bland, rather boring. Just white walls and some oak trim and some carpet, rather boring. Got a nice bright window, but other than that, it's a pretty boring decorated place. Why? Because the glory is not in the decoration. 
glory is in the presence of God. He says, I don't want to be depicted. I don't want to be seen. Don't paint the top of your church with a picture of the last judgment. Leave me out of it as far as visually God is saying. But let me into it spiritually. Secondly, there is a single reason why we are able to be here. And that is grace. The Israelites didn't come up with the idea. The Israelites didn't say to God, Hey God, we've been thinking, now that we come out of Egypt, you know, it'd be a nice idea if we could worship you. And and can we build you kind of like a tent and have some furniture and we'll use that as the means by which, would that be okay with you, God? No, it's God who comes to them and says, hard for me to say this, God would say, but I, I know you, I know your hearts. I know the kind of people you are, but you're my people, and I love you. And I want to dwell with you. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They've grumbled and quarreled all the way from Egypt to Sinai. It's by grace alone. Now, sometimes song service just fits in so beautifully. It's like, We talk, and we didn't even talk about that, but there it is, by grace alone. It's only by grace alone, through Christ, through that shedding of blood. If that priest enters that holy of holy without the blood of Christ, without the blood of that animal, he's a dead man. We dare to try to worship God outside of Jesus Christ. We are spiritually dead. We are under the judgment of God. God does not accept that as worship. God is not pleased with that as worship. God condemns Christless worship. Christ always is the means by which we enter into the presence of God. But third, those are probably pretty out there. I mean, it's sort of pretty obvious that those things are there, and we've kind of gone over those things over the course of, of time. But Perhaps this is what needs to be emphasized. See, when we come to worship, we have to have a dual understanding of what worship is. There are two aspects, and I know you're going to want to write in the words and then close your Bibles and fold up the notes. Please don't. Just, Just listen through the end tonight. We... We need to understand that when we come to worship, we are coming into the presence of God. That it is is an amazing thing. It's amazing because we're pretty sinful people. Probably fought on the way here to church. Probably had arguments. Probably thinking, Pastor Bob's preaching way too long tonight. Actually not, we're on the short end of the stick right now. So hang on. We're in the presence of God. What an amazing thing that is. You and I get to enter into the presence of God. 
That ought to be just an absolutely exhilarating, joyful, celebratory feeling. There ought to be the sense when we come to worship, when that call to worship comes to us on a Sunday morning, that there's just this overwhelming sense of joy. This is awesome. This is amazing. And I use the word awesome, not lightly. Because it truly is an awesome thing to be in the presence of God. But the second aspect of it is this. But God is still God. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Bob? What I mean by that is this. God does not lower himself to come and to allow us into his presence. It is we who are elevated into the presence of God. See, and that's where the church world today gets it wrong. When they look at worship, it's, oh, God's coming down to us to be with us. So God is lessened. God's no longer holy. God's no longer awesome. God no longer needs to be respected. No longer does anybody need to be in holy fear of God. God's just a big buddy. He's just a nice friend. And we can do whatever we want in worship. It's just kind of big old times. Because, you see, God's come down to us. My friends, that's not what happens when we worship. It's not God comes down to us. It's we are lifted up into the presence of God. That's what happens. See, that's the picture of Revelation. What is it? That Christ is the center. Christ is our all in all. That's what's happening. We're joining in that worship of God in glory. We're being lifted up, my friends. That's what ought to fill us with the amazing joy and excitement. There ought to be smiles galore upon our faces. We've been lifted up into the presence of God. Because you see, I, Jehovah, change not. God is still holy. God is still majestic. God still deserves to be reverenced. We are still to hold God in awe. And we're allowed to do so because we're with Him. Not that He has come to us. That He did. He dwelt amongst us. He paid the price. He gave His blood. He sacrificed on the cross. So that what? We can stand outside in the courtyard? No. So that we can be in the first room of the tabernacle? No. But that we can be in His very presence. The veil has been rent so that you and I can enter into the majestic, holy, awesome presence of Almighty God. And what joy ought to fill our hearts. What excitement there ought to be in our worship. What passion should be there. The last place that you should find boring and dull is here. This is where the Spirit 
lifts us to God's presence. How can that happen? By grace, through faith, and the shed blood of Christ. We enter into the presence of God. But now, now we see in it but a mere dimness. Then we shall see face to face. Glory. Worship. God's way. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Oh, my Father, for giving us your Son, leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Praise and the glory of Jesus Christ. God's people say, Amen. Let's